Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm David Flint. This is Save the Nation. It's on the new and exciting platform for television and broadcasting in Australia, ADH-TV. And my guest today is Ian Plymer, certainly the nation's most celebrated and best-known geologist. It's often said in political circles, just follow the science. And it seems obvious to me that when you have a science of the standing of Ian Plymer, then you'd obviously follow him. Ian, just to recall, is an emeritus professor of the University of, London, uh, University of Melbourne, but also a professor of a number of Australian universities and of a German university, has published extraordinarily widely, both in the academic field, but also in the field of explaining and speaking to people generally. He's also a prize-winning geologist, and he has a, a marvellous style, and he is courageous in what he has to say. And the latest piece that I've read from Ian Plymer is in Spectator Australia, where he has a wonderful piece which is headed as this year, what climate crisis? And then the subheading is past warming has never been driven by an increase in carbon dioxide. There you've really thrown down the gauntlet. Past warming has never been driven by an increase in carbon dioxide. And I might get you, if you would, Ian, to explain that. And also you've got this wonderfully simple way of looking at changes in the climate. Can you tell us how, how it's driven by tectonics, plate tectonics? Then uh, over a different period, it's driven by orbital cycles around the sun. Who would have thought the sun would be involved in climate? <laughs> and then finally, uh, variations in energy emitted from the sun. Can you, and I'm sure you, uh, you of all people, 
will be able to explain that so that even lawyers can understand it. What does what what causes climate? Well, climate has always changed and we are getting changes in temperature, in rainfall and in many other measurable factors over time. And they're always changing. And in the distant past, we can use proxies to measure these. In modern times, we can instrumentally measure them. We've had the planet warming and cooling for a very, very long period of time, like about 4,567 million years. Now, for most of time, the planet has been warmer and wetter than now. For most of time, sea level has been higher. We are living in times where we are in an interglacial of a great ice age. Now, we've had six great ice ages. Our current ice age started 34 million years ago. That's when South America pulled away from Antarctica. Antarctica was isolated. It had a circumpolar current. No warm water could come from the equator down to the poles, and we started to cool down. Now, during that 34 million year ice age, we've had warmings and we've had coolings. I'm talking to you from Melbourne. 18 million years ago, Melbourne was tropical. And I've lived here four times, God knows. They, they need a bit of tropical weather here occasionally. So we've had warmings and coolings during this ice age. And these warmings and coolings are driven by the distance from the sun. And that distance from the sun changes because we have an orbit that goes from circular to elliptical, an orbit that's axis that changes a little bit, and an orbit that wobbles. So as we get closer to the sun, we warm up. As we get further away, we cool down. So that is one of the drivers of climate at present. Uh, at present, we also have the sun, which is changing in the amount of energy it pushes out. And that gives us solar cycles. And these are every 22 years or multiples of that. And then we have these grand solar cycles every um, 10,000 years or so. Now, we're currently coming out of a warming period and coming into a grand solar minimum. That started in 2020. It'll finish in 2053. Now, unless you can change the magnetic fields in the sun, you have no way of changing climate. Unless you can change the way in which the Earth orbits, you have no way of changing climate. Unless you can change where the continents of the planet are, there's no way of changing climate. Our continents are moving all the time. Sometimes a continent has the misfortune to be over a pole. And we were in the great supercontinent of Gondwana. We were over the South Pole. Australia, together with South America, Antarctica, India and South Africa or Africa were joined together and over the pole. We then had an ice age because we were drifting over the pole very, very slowly. When we got away from there, then we warmed up. When we pull apart continents, we change the flow of water in the oceans, which carries a lot of heat. We change currents because there are blocks of land that move currents in a different direction. So there are three factors that are driving climate. One of them is where we are as a continent, in other words, plate tectonics, and that's on about a 400 million year scale. There's another one which is orbital, and that's on a 100,000 year, 40,000 year, 20,000 year scale. 
and there's another to the solar, that there's 22-year scale. Now, in the complete history of planet Earth, we've had millions of climate changes, and not one of these we can identify was driven by a change in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We see no record of carbon dioxide driving climate in the past, and there is therefore no logical reason to think that climate change in the present is driven by changes of carbon dioxide. Well, so well, the past is the key to the present. Is in uh, what's going to happen then when we achieve this nirvana, which the politicians and the media are telling us about every day, that is net zero emissions. What will we achieve in this country? It's going to obviously cost us an enormous amount. What will we get in return for net zero emissions? Well, we're already at net zero, number one, and this is because we uh, emit a certain amount of carbon dioxide and we sequester more carbon dioxide than we emit, and that goes into crops, uh, rangelands, grasslands, uh, forests and our continental shelf waters. Uh, what we will achieve will be absolutely nothing. We will have no climate change because climate change is driven by bigger factors than carbon dioxide. We will be bankrupt. We will wonder how we got into the state of Argentina and that we will have achieved by being totally stupid. Now, we've had two global experiments that should give us the clues. The first was a global financial crisis. And during this time, we were pumping out less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, yet the total carbon dioxide kept increasing at the same rate. So what this is telling us is that human emissions are doing absolutely nothing to the total emissions on planet Earth. The second big experiment was in COVID-19 in 2020 and 2021. And again, human emissions were reduced the rate of carbon dioxide remained the same, and that's showing us that the major emitters, such as the oceans and volcanoes, are driving the amount of carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. It's not human activity. That is minuscule. That may well even have no influence at all. So whatever we do to change our human emissions will not change climate in a major planetary system. It will send us broke, but it won't change the planet's climate. You've written a marvellous book called Green Motor, and it is really an encyclopaedia for anybody wanting to understand in plain English what all this science is about and to understand what is happening. But you say there, if I recall it correctly, that there have been six major ice ages and at the beginning of every ice age there was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than today. Now, have I recalled that correctly and how do we know how much carbon dioxide was there at that time? Well, a very good second question. Uh, firstly, uh, our first great ice age was in the Pongolian, and that was way back in time, nearly three billion years ago, and we see records of material left behind by retreating ice. That was when the planet had its first atmosphere, rich in ammonia and methane. 
But it's the second and the third Ice Ages, which are the really important ones. The second one was the Huronian, about two and a half billion years ago. And the third was the Cryogenian, about 600 million years ago. Now, both of these had ice at the equator. Both of these had a sea level change of about 1,500 metres. This we can measure in the rocks. But both of these had a very carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere. And we know that because we pulled out carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to deposit a marine sediment called dolomite. Dolomite is a calcium-magnesium carbonate. It's got 48% of the gas carbon dioxide in this solid rock. So all we do is we stagger through the hills, we measure the area of dolomite that we can measure, and from drill holes and from assumptions, we can say, well, this probably goes to at least 10 or 20 kilometres of depth. Then we can calculate the weight of carbon dioxide that is in that rock, and that carbon dioxide must have come from the atmosphere. So we put it back into the atmosphere and back calculate how much carbon dioxide we had in the atmosphere. And at those times, we had at least 20% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The next great ice age was about 470 million years ago. We used the same trick. Dolomite wasn't really dominant then. It was limestone. And we just measured the amount of limestone on the Earth, put the carbon dioxide from that limestone, which has got 44% carbon dioxide in it, put it back into the atmosphere and calculate how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere. We do it again for another great ice age when Gondwana um, drifted across the South Pole, again measure the amount of limestones, do it again in the Cretaceous and do it again in our modern ice age. So we can back calculate from the natural sequestration of carbon dioxide, we can back calculate how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere. And in each of those six ice ages, and even if our calculation is plus or minus 20%, we have a huge amount of carbon dioxide compared with today. Now, today we have 0.04% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. In those times, we had anything from 0.5% to 20% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that's telling us that we've had six of the six great ice ages that started before um, humans start to emit carbon dioxide. So there's absolutely no relationship whatsoever. Is there a difference somehow in the quality of carbon dioxide emitted by mankind and that emitted from plants? There are slight chemical fingerprint differences because the carbon dioxide emitted by mankind uh, is from the burning of oil or the burning of old vegetation, which is coal. And this gives us a slight chemical fingerprint in the atmosphere, which is different from ancient carbon dioxide. Now, with that method, we have to make a huge number of assumptions. And those assumptions don't assume methane, which gets oxidised to carbon dioxide, coming out of the tundra. They don't assume... Uh, peat fires, they don't assume forest fires. So those figures are very, very rubbery at the best. Rather than counting the tonnage of coal and oil that humans build, there's a chemical trick that's used 
to try to look at the fingerprint of carbon in the atmosphere and saying, oh, this must be from vegetation and from humans burning vegetable matter. And there are many of us that have grave reservations about those calculations because the assumptions are huge and the assumptions are very broad in terms of the amount of carbon that can be assumed from human sources. We were told that it's important that we switch our electrification to renewables, that, uh, that uh, electricity should be coming from solar and wind. Curiously, the politicians seem to avoid suggesting that electricity should come from hydro or from nuclear. What, why do you think they make this distinction? Well, they are trying to appeal to the dark greens and on the conservative side of politics, why even bother about these people? And they're trying to say, Let's, let, let us assume that wind and solar energy are free. Well, they're not. There's a cost of capital. There's a cost of changing our grids. And to build a solar plant, you emit more carbon dioxide than it will save. To build a wind plant, you will uh, save more carbon dioxide by that going nuclear. Um, but if you build a wind plant, you put out a huge amount of carbon dioxide to build it and service it, and it just doesn't add up. In terms of the energy that you get from solar and from wind, the amount of energy you produce is less than the amount of energy you use to make it. And the third thing is, of course, you contaminate the planet enormously with really toxic chemicals from both solar and from wind. And um, these energy systems kill off wildlife and kill off scenery. So they're not a very good idea, but it's a political sop to try to appeal to green voters. Nuclear, of course, does emit some carbon dioxide, and that's for the making of the concrete for the foundations. And then after that, the small amount of maintenance that you need for um, hydrocarbon-driven vehicles going to and from the plant is very, very small. So politicians are not appealing to logic. They're not using the numbers that engineers and scientists will give them. What they're doing is trying to win votes for the next three-year term. They don't care about whether we go broke. They don't care whether their actions create another Argentina. They don't care whether pensioners cannot afford electricity. All they want is to be re-elected, and if they think, and their advisors generally who are 23 years old and have got a, a huge amount of life experience, if these advisors are telling them that you've got to go green, then they'll go green to stay in power. So this has got nothing to do with logic. It's got nothing to do with science. It's got nothing to do with engineering. It's to do with getting re-elected and hoping a light green and dark green vote will change the balance of power. Is there anything sinister, do you think, in the fact that of the renewables which are in political favour, that is solar and wind, the country which seems to be making the greatest profit out of these is communist China? And the ones which they seem to regret, completely discard, that is nuclear and uh, hydro, are not ones where the communists, the Beijing communists, are making an enormous profit. Am I being well, uh, I think it's, uh, suspicious? I, th I think it's very stupid. Uh, I'm very suspicious. 
uh, I think it is sinister, the end result of uh, policies which have not been thought through. And the end result is, why should we, we be rewarding people who claim to be our enemies? We, we should have energy uh, that comes from Australia, from Australian coal, from Australian uranium, from Australian water. Uh, we shouldn't be making ourselves dependent upon solar panels coming out of China or wind turbines coming out of China. This is just crash stupidity. But the other S word which really has me concerned is that of sovereignty uh, and that is of security. We uh, are weakening ourselves by having our energy systems dependent upon a country which is politically hostile to us. I, I find it uh, rather extraordinary that we're depending so much on the communist Chinese and uh, we're the politicians are all reciting across the world that we must have net zero emissions. You've explained to us that we already have that in Australia, but uh, all countries seem to be saying this, and politicians in all countries. I've seen criticism by uh, some conservative uh, constitutional monarchists of Prince Charles when he was the prince, and he talked very much about global warming and the, the usual statement in relation to net zero emissions and so on. In uh, defence of him, both as prince and king, I suppose one could say that every prime minister and every leader of the opposition of every realm of which he is king would all be advising him the, the current idea about net zero emissions and that uh, man-made carbon dioxide is the cause of enormous uh, climate change and that if we could stop that, we would have a perfect climate. Well, I think you're absolutely right. It's the quality of advice and the number of advisors he, he has. And King Charles is advised by many, many people who uh, are of the view that we are doomed and the planet's falling apart, we're all going to try and die. Um, but uh, the past shows us that that's not the case. Now, contrary to that, his father was a reader of my books, and I have um, some lovely correspondence from his father referring to global warming as nonsense. So um, clearly um, the Duke of Edinburgh was uh, advised by others. I know one of those who uh, was an advisor and drinking friend of his, and they clearly chatted about climate and had a very different view from Prince Charles, or sorry, King Charles. So it's about the quality of advice. Currently, our government in this country is getting advice from the loopy left, from Greens, from the Greens party, and they depend upon that advice to stay in power. They don't take advice from those people who are trying to create cheap, reliable electricity. They don't take advice from engineers who have built power systems. You cannot build a transmission system based on ideology. You build it on good engineering principles. And those engineering principles are underpinned by science. So we're seeing today major policies which have a strategic influence, a sovereign influence, a defence influence, which are based on ideology. And there is one barrage of opinion that is being taken and no opinion has been taken 
by those who, in the true spirit of science, are sceptical. And science is married to scepticism. Science is married to evidence. You must listen to all views. But that's not what is happening, and that will be to our peril. I received something from the local council the other day telling me about what one can be done, what can be done to encourage the use of electric vehicles. And what they seem to be saying is that uh, we should be encouraging charging, the charging of electric vehicles in apartment buildings in Sydney. What I wanted to know, but I couldn't find anything on it, is whether, whether a strata committee or strata council should be wondering whether it is safe indeed to allow not so much electric cars to be charged in a building, but whether you should allow them to be parked in a building. Uh, what, what is your view about electric vehicles? Well, a couple of, of uh, comments uh, on what you said. Firstly, we would have to rewire the grid. Secondly, we would have to rewire the apartment complex. Thirdly, uh, those who own car parks cannot get insurance if electric vehicles are parked there because they have a habit of catching a light and when they're alight, you can't put the fire out. And thirdly, if you want to drive from your apartment block to the local Woolworths or Coles and back again, fine. But some people actually drive larger distances and some people uh, live in rural regional outback Australia. Over the weekend, I drove to Broken Hill and back from Melbourne. That's 860 kilometres each way. Um, it took me less than a day to drive there. It would have taken me three to four days to drive there in an electric car. For a country like Australia, electric cars are just madness. If you live in a city where you think you should use electric cars, then obviously you could walk to or get public transport for whatever you want. We have not wired our cities or wired our apartment blocks to handle electric cars. And of course, if you drive an electric car, you are supporting a massive mining boom that must happen to produce the commodities for that car. You're supporting the massive use of coal so you can charge up that electric vehicle. You are using um, commodities that are mined by children as slave labourers in the Congo, and these children um, are employed by Congolese and by Chinese. So if you want to take a moral position about electric cars, you want to have a look at your own morals first. When an electric car is charged, is that electricity always renewable electricity? Pretty well all the time that electricity comes from burning coal. <laughs> and if it is renewable, then you've still got a coal-fired power station burning coal uh, for when the wind or doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. So they're coal-fired cars. They're, they're fired by fossil fuels. Uh, and it is absolute hypocrisy to claim that you are saving the planet by driving an electric car. You're not. One of, the, one of the dangers which seems obvious to me, and I'm only an ordinary citizen, while the government is telling me it's, it'll be easier to get through the approvals for charging in a building, they've reduced the percentages, that you have to acquire to get a resolution through for that purpose in New South Wales. One of the things that concerns me, my reading that fires 
Electric car fires are very dangerous, very difficult to put out and give off terribly toxic fumes. Almost impossible to, to turn off, apparently, to, to stop. Is that, is that correct? Well, that's correct. Um, by making it easier to bypass the regulations is creating safety risks. And that's what's happening. Um, councils and other uh, state government organisations are saying, oh, we love electric cars. We're going to waive all sorts of safety regulations. When you have an electric car fire, you have the most reactive metal we know, that's lithium, um, undergoing a chemical reacting, reaction. It's not combustion like the burning of, uh, of, of a, a diesel fire or a petrol fire. This is a chemical reaction. Uh, it uh, cannot be put out. You basically have to run out of material for the chemical reaction before the fire will go out. And during that reaction, you liberate hydrofluoric acid. Hydrofluoric acid is extraordinarily toxic. If you breathe it, you will kill yourself. It actually works its way through the skin to the bone. It changes your bones to be powdery rather than brittle. Um, it is such a toxin that it can dissolve rocks. It can dissolve glass. We have special firefighting equipment if we want to try to isolate um, a fire from an electric car. But you cannot put them out and they are extraordinarily dangerous. So by changing the regulations or speeding up the regulations, all local and state governments are doing is uh, setting a pathway to kill people. Uh, they seem to often say, well... Uh diesel and petrol cars catch fire too, but uh, I assume such fires are not as dangerous. Are they, are they less or more common? Is it more likely that an electric car will catch fire than other cars? Well, we're seeing a very large number of electric cars catch a light. I don't know the numbers um, with regard to trucks uh, driven by diesel and cars driven by petrol uh, and their fires, but we do know how to put those fires out, and that is starve the fire of oxygen. That doesn't work with a lithium battery fire. So um, with these extremely toxic um, fires that you can't put out, um, we probably haven't got enough data yet to say, look, um, we, we should not be considering these. But the airline companies uh, are considering this. They're very careful about having fairly large lithium batteries in the hold. Um, smaller lithium batteries in your laptops and phones you can carry uh, as uh, cabin baggage. But larger lithium batteries, no, because if you get a fire in the hold of an aeroplane and it's over the mid-Pacific, you can't put it out. And, and basically you have a disaster waiting to happen. So the aeroplane companies uh, are very much focused on safety whereas um, local and state governments are focused on what might seem politically nice so that these lovely, kind politicians can get re-elected. Are electric planes in serious contemplation? Well, electric planes might be able to taxi up and down the runway, but <laughs> the weight of the electric motor is so great that the fuel uh, used to have it to take off and the payload is such that it just makes it totally uneconomic. So uh, it, it's a wonderful thought. People have been trying these things for 100 years, uh, and it's, it's about the payload. 
and the amount of energy you, you can get from an internal combustion engine or a jet engine is far, far more per unit weight than you can from an electric engine. Well, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, one thing that did surprise me was that when I saw in Germany that they, they decided to go back to the electric uh, stations which had been powered by coal, they still had those. They'd, they didn't destroy them, but in Australia they seem to be destroying power stations which are fired by coal. And it makes me wonder, are German politicians more intelligent than Australian politicians? Well, a couple of things we had in South Australia and in Victoria, absolute glee when the Labor governments destroyed something that taxpayers had bought. And they destroyed it such that it could never be used again. Now, any logical thinking would be that if you are going to change your industrial process, keep the old one there just in case something goes wrong. Just keep it there. This happens on most industrial sites. We didn't do that. This was ideological vandalism. In Germany, we had the Green Party actually supporting um, the uh, reuse of nuclear power stations and the reuse of coal-fired power stations. So their Greens were pragmatic, our Greens are ideological. Our left in this country uh, is into vulgarity, destruction and vandalism. And because of that, uh, if we have a crisis, then we have a serious crisis in this country. Germany was able to avert that by switching on its coal-fired, both brown and black coal-fired power stations and its nuclear power fire stations. And the Greens were supportive of that. If you were in the government of Australia, what you, would you be recommending in terms of energy? What should we be doing to keep energy in this country at a reasonable price and reliable? I would immediately stop subsidies and let the market shake out. Uh, I would get rid of mandates such that um, as soon as you have electricity from wind or solar, then the, the coal-fired power stations have got to shut off. I would get rid of those, get rid of the subsidies, and I would change the legislation both federal and state such that we could have uh, nuclear power stations and I would make sure that we would have um, contracts that last for the life of a nuclear power station, and that would be 80-year contracts and maybe even 100-year contracts, such that those who would want to build a nuclear power station would have guarantees of being able to provide cheap and reliable electricity 24-7, 365 days a year. We don't have that at present, and we should just get out of the cities and look at how the farmers live. The farmer makes a loss or a profit, depending upon the weather. We are now having energy systems where we have electricity or no electricity dependent upon the weather. That's just madness. So um, if I was king of the world, I'd kill off subsidies. Let the market do what the market does best, and that's make a profit. Quite often there's a criticism when it comes to the massive subsidies that are given to so-called renewables, and uh, in reply, the Greens and others say, oh, there's already massive subsidies for fossil energy activities. Is that so? That is misleading and deceptive conduct. In um, 
various primary producers, there uh, is a rebate that comes for diesel fuel. So that diesel fuel that you buy has a component of the diesel fuel to rebuild our roads for the damage the trucks do to roads. Now, if you've got a fishing business, you're not using roads, so you get that rebate. If you've got a farming business, you're using your own roads, so you get that rebate back. Um, if you're a mining company, you use your own roads and you get that diesel fuel subsidy for public roads that comes back to you. That is not a subsidy. That's getting a rebate because you're not using public roads. And that is calculated, misleading and deceptive conduct by the Greens to muddy the waters. There is no such thing as um, the farmers or fishermen or miners getting subsidies from the government um, for the energy they use. That is a lie, and that lie the Greens are quite happy, happy to perpetuate. One of the, one of the uh, comments often made is that uh, uh, governments, governments are doing this for our benefit. We will achieve a situation where the climate is under control. And I think this is the view of the, of the public. They think, and this is done, this is helped by exaggeration about the climate, uh, the presentation in the news that something is exceptional. Sometimes the news coming out panicking about just ordinary developments in the weather, which we're quite used to. And uh, I, I think that uh, what we're being presented with is a complete dogma. We're, we're being presented with an enormous amount of propaganda concerning climate change. This is being taught in the schools. But at some stage, surely, people will realise that something is wrong. When there's been polling done about this, the suggestion is that people support governments taking action in relation to climate change. But when they're asked how much they're willing to pay for this, the amount that they're actually willing to pay, that is to say, in very much increased prices for electricity, is very small. They're not willing to pay what is going to be imposed on them. Do you think at some stage there will be some realisation and there'll be at least moral retribution in relation to the politicians and those parts of the media which are obviously misleading the population? Well, that was a long question, but to start at the beginning, um, if there's a slight change, then we hear words like unprecedented. And if you go back and look in the past, you find that this flood, that fire, those temperatures were not unprecedented. If you go back into the dim distant past, the geological past, there's really only one or two things in the history of the planet that are unprecedented. One is the appearance of, of life on Earth. Uh, so uh, we are being fed absolute rubbish by the media. The second thing is climate does change all the time. What is the ideal climate? If you ask an Eskimo what is the ideal climate, you'll get a very different answer from someone living in the Australian desert or from someone living in the tropics. What is the ideal climate? And there is no answer to that question because we humans can live at altitude. We can live in deserts. We can live at sea level. We can live on the ice sheets, at the edge of the ice sheets, in the tropics. 
we have adapted to live in a great variety of climates. So there is no ideal climate and there is no record of people dying from warming. And I'll give you an example. We have in the outback Queensland town of Mount Isa a very large Finnish population. These Finnish miners came to Mount Isa. They experienced an average of a 40 degree Celsius temperature change to go from cold Finland to hot Mount Isa. We have no records of Finnish miners dropping dead in Mount Isa because of that temperature change. So the whole lot we're being fed is absolute total rubbish. But we're being fed this because the community is trying to um, survive by hanging on by their fingernails and governments are trying to make the community frightened such that we will re-elect a government to save us from this terrible catastrophe. We have to turn that around. We have to make politicians frightened such that they do what we want them to do. We don't have to be frightened to do what politicians want us to do, and that's to re-elect them. So this has got nothing to do with the climate, nothing to do with bettering the life of people in Australia. It is only to re-elect the politicians and to have a, a bureaucracy which uh, basically drives the political process. In terms of the polls, most people are generous in spirit. And if they think the climate is changing and we can do this to change it, they'll say, oh, yes, let's, let's do this. But if it's going to cost you, they say no. And it's now costing us a lot of money with our electricity bills. And I think we will see a change, and that is when we have the cost of living becomes even higher. When we have bankruptcy is very common. When we have lost this country's power, sovereignty, uh, when we cannot have electricity when we want it. And then people might ask the question, how did we get here? And we got there by being stupid. We got there by not putting our politicians' feet to the fire. We got there by believing these scientists who have a self-interest, these scientists who are eminently unemployable outside the climate industry, which has set itself a brief, and that is to take all your taxpayers' money to frighten you witless so you'll pay more money. I think the day of reckoning is coming, but it will be a financial reckoning and it will be very hard to unstitch the very complex system we have now for electricity generation, electricity sales, uh, subsidies and mandates. We used to hear the advice that about 97% of scientists are unanimous in relation to the traditional views of uh, climate change. You would challenge that, obviously. Well, I challenge that survey. That survey was done by a chap called John Cook, and he sent a survey to 10,000 people who are unemployable outside the climate industry, 3,000 of these so-called climate scientists, and not all of them were scientists, many were sociologists, as John Cook is, many of them were activists and psychologists, 3,000 replied. Out of the 3,000 replies, John Cook chose 77 of these replies, um, and 76 gave the same answer, one didn't. 
And these were basically people asked if uh, humans are changing climate. Now, these people's whole livelihood depended upon saying yes. And 97%, in other words, 76 out of the 77, said yes. That survey was absolutely slaughtered in the, in the literature by a chap called David Legatis, and that survey continues to get quoted. That survey was cherry-picked. That survey is fault, false. That survey was done with a preordained conclusion. That survey was done by people who put bread on the table by taking our money to frighten us with is, is there such a discrete area of science called climate science? Yes, it's called geology. In the last 250 years, every geology textbook has had a significant part of that textbook dealing with climate. There were great battles going on in the 19th century about whether Europe and the British Isles and North America were once covered by ice. These battles were battles about ancient climate. There were the French scientists that looked at the Paris Basin and said, oh, wait a minute, Paris can be cool in winter, yet all the fossils are telling us that Paris was once tropical. And these people very nearly cottoned on to the idea of continental drift. Charles Lyell, in 1833, was arguing that sea level rises and falls, and as a result of sea level rising, coral atolls keep growing up. These ideas were the great climate ideas of the 19th century, and textbooks are full of this. And it was only when there was in, an industry developed to frighten people witless, to hoover up huge amounts of money, that mathematicians, meteorologists and physicists started to call themselves climate scientists. The, this, if it is a discipline at all, is a very, very recent discipline. And if you really want to understand climate science, go back into the past. Look at what the geology textbooks say. Look at what the past is telling us. And that's why we geologists, are, to a person, we, we are saying this whole business of human-induced climate change is just contable. We see no evidence of it in the past. I've uh, read uh, of a British mathematician who became American called Professor Box. And uh, one of his most famous statements is that all models are wrong, but they, some of them can be useful. Uh, it seems that the sort of modelling that's being done is taking an inordinate claim to factuality, and many of the models seem to vary very much. Uh, I've read, for example, that uh, in relation to the United Nations climate modelling, this is an average of models. They don't try to choose the right model. To keep everybody quiet, they average the different models. Well, there are two things going on here. The climate alarmists play games with language. A model is a model. It is not factual. It's not a prediction. It's not telling us what the future is going to uh, give to us. A model is a very naive attempt to try to understand processes that are going on. And it's naive because there are a large number of factors we don't know. And um, the UN has over 100 models. None of these models over the last 30 years have been in accord with what we've measured over the last 30 years. So the models cannot predict the future. We use models all the time in geology. We use an integration of geochemical, geophysical, um, and um, 
geological models, we then test it by putting a drill hole into what we think might be a target. Invariably, these are wrong. We will refine the model and have another go. We will refine the model and have another go, and ultimately someone says, no way in the world are we going to give you any more money to test your models. But that doesn't happen in the climate industry. Uh, you keep revising your models. So a model is a very naive way of trying to understand the torturous, unknown, multi-component systems of nature. And these models are not fact. Uh, they don't tell us the future. And they are used by the mainstream media to say, ah, oh, you know, we, in 100 years' time, we're all going to fry and die. Well, we've got 30 years of models to show that that's not the case. Now, when we look at other models, such as some of the Russian models, which have been done without using carbon dioxide as a driving force, but using solar and other astronomical features, they are a much better way of looking at the last 30 years than models that use carbon dioxide. These models assume that carbon dioxide is a principal component in driving climate. They don't work. Therefore, carbon dioxide cannot be a principal component. So if we went back to what you said, uh, are the causes of uh, climate, uh, <coughs> movements of plate tectonics, the, uh, the orbital cycles and uh, uh, variations in energy, if we could have models about those, they might be more helpful. I'd be very uh, nervous about having models of plate tectonics um, for the reasons that I've mentioned before about models, that we have to make a lot of assumptions and uh, these models are naive. I would be less sceptical about using models of orbital variations because we have over 100 years of observation of orbital variations and we know the orbit does vary and this is why every now and then we have to change our clocks. Um, and on a smaller time scale, uh, I am still sceptical but more confident of solar models because we have measurements that are founded in basic physics. So um, I, I'm very nervous about using models. I much prefer to use measurements. Just in relation to plate tectonics, to bring it uh, to the current news, this, this is... Uh... This is illustrated, is it not, by the terrible news we're currently hearing from Turkey. That is the movement of plate tectonics which causes the problems of earthquakes and so on, is it not? Yes, very much so. We've got Africa moving uh, towards Europe. Uh, eventually we'll close up the Mediterranean Sea. This process of Africa moving towards um, creates the lateral and vertical movement of breaks in the ground, these we call faults, and we strain these up and when they break they give out a huge amount of energy. That amount of energy uh, we can measure and that's called the Richter scale and that's the scale of the amount of energy the earthquake gives out. We also have another scale and this depends upon building regulations and the types of buildings and what you build on and this is a modified Macaulay scale. So if you build uh, a a concrete building on water-saturated sand with a few foundations and the concrete's not reinforced, that building will collapse like a pack of cards. That we saw in Turkey and Syria just recently. If you have 
reinforced concrete, uh, strongly reinforced, built on rock, uh, then the building will move and it will survive an earthquake. So there are two things that happen with earthquakes. It's the amount of energy that's given out and it's um, the, the structure, uh, what we're built on and what we're made of. So the most recent uh, Turkish earthquake was a very good example of plate tectonics in action. Another good example was um, a recent eruption in Tonga in the 19th of January um, in 2022. And this put a huge amount of dust into the atmosphere. And this is where we're getting plates move, where we're getting material pushed down deeper into the ocean, where we're getting melting of wet ocean floor materials. And this rises and explodes and produces dust into the atmosphere. So plate tectonics processes have been going on for billions of years. They're still going on. And if a government can legislate to stop having plate tectonic processes, then I will believe they can legislate to stop climate change. So they would re they'd have to really be able to change or to stop that, that movement in plate tectonics. They'd have to be able to regulate the orbit and they'd have to be able to control energy changes on the sun if they want to control the climate. Yes, of course. Now, some people, when they get elected to politics, think they're very powerful, but I don't think they're that powerful. Did you notice in the last few days that uh, Donald Trump has announced in relation to his uh, campaign to be re-elected that if he is re-elected as president, he will walk out of the Paris Accord? Have you heard of any other politicians indicating that they will leave the Paris Accord? No. And if I were an American citizen and had a vote, that would persuade me to vote for Mr Trump. Um, why should we support the Paris Accord? It is a road to bankruptcy. We are already in net zero. We can say, well, folks, we've done our job. Uh, we're at net zero. Uh, thank you very much. We do not need the Paris Accord. Now, Mr Trump um, does take scientific advice from people like-minded to me. Uh, I know some of these people and I'm very pleased that Mr. Trump is um, trying to look after his country's economy. I wish our politicians would do the same. You, you say that we're already at net zero. Could you explain that again, that we're, mm. we're already at net zero, which would surprise many people in Australia? We burn coal we burn petroleum products and release them to the atmosphere. Now, we release a certain tonnage to the atmosphere. That material we release to the atmosphere, then uh, that carbon dioxide gets sequestered into grasslands uh, during photosynthesis. It gets sequestered into crops during photosynthesis. It gets sequestered into our rangelands and forests due, due to photosynthesis and it gets dissolved in our continental shelf waters. So the natural processes in Australia, because we are a continent with very few people, um, we absorb naturally far more carbon dioxide than we emit. So we're already at net zero. We, we, uh, we are very lucky to have a large continent with few people. And we therefore should become the centre of heavy industry in the world if you think that carbon dioxide is a pollutant and if you think carbon dioxide is going to change climate. 
So that would be the natural uh, thing for a politician to do, to attract every heavy industry, smelting and, and metal manufacturing, into Australia because we're already there. And about 10 times the amount we emit gets actually naturally sequestered into our greenery in Australia. I'm old enough to have gone to school at a time when I was taught that carbon dioxide was not a pollutant. It, would never, it never became an issue when I went to school. To many Australians today, because of what they're being taught, what is being set out in the media, they would be very much surprised when they hear you say that carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. Can you explain what carbon dioxide is and why it isn't a pollutant? Well, you have that opinion because you went to school before the education system was dumbed down. And we have known for a very long period of time that carbon dioxide is plant food, that carbon dioxide is used by plants to build cellulose and sugars. It is plant food. Together with water and nutrients from the soil, uh, that makes plants grow. Now, we know that because horticulturalists have glass houses into which they pump hot carbon dioxide. They have a propane burner, and the exhaust from the propane burning is carbon dioxide and water vapour. They pump that into the glass house, and they get the carbon dioxide about three times the current atmospheric carbon dioxide level. That is the ideal amount, to have about three times what we've got at present. At present, the atmosphere is starved of carbon dioxide. We need more of it for plant growth. So at school, we would have learned about the process of carbon dioxide in photosynthesis. Now we get taught at school that carbon dioxide is a pollutant rather than being plant food. So instead of teaching demonstrable fact, children are now taught an ideology and they cannot escape unless they reset and clear the hard disk and start again. I went to a very ordinary school by the standards of the time. I think I had marvellous teachers. My recollection is how good they were. The class was divided up. This is the primary class. They were divided up and some were sent to highly selective high schools, one to a general high school, and then there were technical schools and they were ranked according to that. My recollection is that in my class, there wasn't a boy there who wasn't literate. There wasn't a boy there who wasn't numerate. They seemed to be all well-informed and they were all disciplined. That seemed to me to be the situation in Australia in the early post-war years. Uh, and it seems extraordinary to me that we should be now going backwards. I went through the same system. We had returned soldiers as our teachers. Uh, these returned soldiers would give you a clip under the ear and if your parents knew about it, you'd get another one. Uh, I remember one kid was once complaining to our physics teacher about stress and this physics teacher stood up and said, son, you wouldn't know what stress was. Stress is when you've got a Messerschmitt 109 up your ass." And these were returned soldiers. They didn't take kids mucking around. And they came back to Australia and promoted an ideology. And the ideology was that I went and fought as a soldier. 
I want to make this country a much better country, the country that I fought for. And the way to do this is by educating children. I heard today on the news about year nine children who are not literate. They cannot read, they cannot write. In year nine, I was doing Shakespeare. In year nine, I was reading essays and I was writing essays. I was doing mathematics taught by a former brigadier who had been in Changi. Um, the teachers in my day and in your day had a purpose and that was to make the world a better place. They had seen war, they had seen poverty and they wanted Australia to be a unified country with a purpose and to gain that was through education. There was corporal punishment. Um, we got caned and it didn't psychologically damage me. The only way I could learn Latin was to get caned. If we didn't learn our Latin, we got caned. And the um, path of least agony was to learn Latin, otherwise you got caned. So, I, I think that was a wonderful system. And that we had discipline. And the parents insisted that the teachers were to be respected, that if a teacher said something, you must obey it. And if you got belted by a teacher at school, you also got belted at home. Those were the rules, and no one cared about them. In a sign of the times, there was a report very recently in the media, and it related to the assessment, the way in which we know, for example, that about a third of boys, apparently, leaving school are functionally illiterate and highly enumerate. And these are serious problems, but uh, this comes through the NAPLAN tests. What they've done, apparently, and this has been signed off, this has been proposed by an agency of the government which is in charge of curriculum, supported by the federal government and signed off by every state and territory minister for education. And that is that changes will be made to the NAPLAN assessment, which will mean that failure will not be reported, nobody will fail, and that it will be impossible to make comparisons with earlier reports or between schools. They'll take away all of the point of getting this assessment. So what they will be doing rather than curing the problem is to killing the news, killing the bad news. And this seems in many ways to reflect this attitude in relation to a manufactured problem, which you call the, the greatest scientific fraud in all history, that is global warming. Yes, very much so. We're uh, continuing to have a, a dumbing down of the education system. It's dumbed down to the point where everyone's a winner. Everyone gets a little yellow ribbon. We have to learn very early in life by failing exams, by not getting first in, in, in football or running race. We, we have to learn that we don't win all the time. And they're great lessons. Uh, they're great lessons to learn to fail. And um, to win is very, very rare. And we dine out on our wins. Now, our education system has been dumbed down to the point where we will have a society of functionally illiterate people who may or may not be intelligent and the intelligent ones will wonder, well, how did I get here? We've seen this over 60 years and by governments agreeing to this, I think is an absolute turpitude. Ian Plymer, you are really a national treasure, a real national treasure.
I am indebted to you for the time you've given today. You should be in very high demand by our media and by our universities, but I suspect that you are not, but you should be. You will be because your works will be consulted and this piece, Green Murder, will become a leading text on what really went wrong. I want to thank you very much for the time that you've given today. You've given us an hour and that's a wonderful thing. And uh, I just want to say how much we appreciate it and how important it is in this program, Save the Nation on this exciting new platform. And I think that uh, you, will, you are making a magnificent contribution and thank you very much and may you long continue. Thank you for having me, David.